Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference McNuggets, part two. Well, as most of you already know, I am trying to increase the output and production of Radio Free Mormon episodes to help us all weather through this sheltering at home period during the pandemic of the coronavirus in the United States and indeed throughout the world. As part of that effort, I have taken myself to going over the October 2019 General Conference and picking out highlights from different talks that I wanted to expatiate upon, different parts of different talks that caught my attention for one reason or another. And I started with the first few talks in Saturday morning session of General Conference, October of 2019 in the last episode, and I expect to continue with more of those talks in today's episode. But before I get to that part of the podcast, I wanted to give you an update on the church's response to the coronavirus. Now, we all know by now that President Nelson was able to foresee this coronavirus in a number of different ways. First off, he told us that this conference would be unlike any other conference. He also instituted a program where church meetings would reduce from their customary three hours to two hours and in what would have been that other third hour at church, we have been directed to study the Come Follow Me manual at home with our families. In this way, President Nelson has been preparing us to have church at home. Why would he do this if he did not see the coronavirus coming? And finally, the church has a long-standing practice of encouraging its members to have food storage. Now, when I joined the church back in 1978, we heard about this an awful lot. At that time, it was two years of food storage that every family was supposed to have at their house. Sometime, I think it was in the 1980s, that was reduced to a year's supply of food storage because the two years was obviously too much to do. And then sometime after that, we stopped hearing about food storage at all. At least I cannot remember in the last many years in General Conference hearing any talks about food storage. And yet those teachings are a part of the LDS church history, and therefore we should have been following them in order to be prepared for this coronavirus. So we can see that in many different ways, the prophets of God have seen the coronavirus coming and have counseled us to do what we need to do in order to be prepared for this emergency. Now, what with all this foreknowledge about the coronavirus coming and the need to shelter at home, one might think that the church would have been ahead of the game in getting its missionaries home, in shutting down its services at church, in closing the temples, and in other ways, protecting its members. But as we look at what is actually transpiring, it seems for all the world that the church is not ahead of the game on this, but that the church is actually playing catch-up. The church is not ahead of the government's requirements and mandates and counsel regarding sheltering at home and closing down services and not having meetings at which more than 10 people are present. Instead, it is only after those directions have come forward that the church is getting in compliance. And indeed, in some ways, the church seems to be behind the ball in getting in compliance. The church has brought home many missionaries from their missions, and that's a good thing. A lot of those missionaries live in Utah and in Salt Lake City and they come home to the airport. Now, it's a customary tradition among Mormons that when a missionary returns from a mission, a large group of people, friends, family, well-wishers, are present at the airport to greet the missionary. Obviously, that would be a bad idea under the current circumstances, with the missionaries being returned home prematurely due to the coronavirus because they could be carriers of the coronavirus coming in as they do from hotspots overseas. And so having them greeted by a large group of people at the airport 
Probably not the best idea, and yet the church, even with 15 prophets, seers, and revelators at its head, did not advise members to not go to the airport to greet missionaries returning from other countries. And because of that, the normal custom was followed and large groups of people went to greet the returning missionaries. After this happened, it hit the news and the church made a statement at that point, once again, not ahead of the ball, but after the fact, saying that they were disappointed that the members went in large groups to meet the missionaries. Now, I have no particular gift of insight or prophetic power, and yet it would have seemed to me obvious that Mormons would go in large groups to greet missionaries at the airport as they have always done, and therefore, before the fact, before the missionaries actually returned, to send out notices to wards, stakes, through all the different channels of communication that the church has to advise members not to meet with missionaries in large groups, as they have always done in the past. As I say, I don't claim to be a prophet. This is just something that is common sense. And yet, even with 15 prophets at the head of the church, that recommendation, that advice, that counsel was not given to members, leading to the situation at the Salt Lake City Airport that hit the news. And it is when we get to this point, and when I personally got to this point, to realize that not only do the leaders of the church not manifest prophetic powers, but they don't even seem to manifest common sense or the ordinary ability to predict what will happen based on what has happened in the past, forecast that into the future, and take precautionary steps based upon it. That doesn't require a prophet. That just requires somebody with common sense. And this lack of prophetic foresight applies not just to returning missionaries, but also to the closure of temples. Now, temples, as we know, is a place where largely elderly people congregate. Both temple workers and temple patrons are generally older and in that category of people who are particularly susceptible to the coronavirus. And yet the LDS Church did not close temples prior to the outbreak of the coronavirus. It did not close temples when the coronavirus hit. Instead, the church did not close its temples until one of the temple workers tested positive for the coronavirus. And it was only after that happened that the church decided it might be a good idea to close down the temples. Now think about this. We've got an elderly individual, probably a man, a temple worker, who contracts the coronavirus. And before he is tested for it, but while he still has the virus and while he is still able to contaminate others with the coronavirus, he's at the temple doing what temple workers do. And if he is in the endowment, he is touching the hands of literally every other patron in the temple, at least the male patrons in the temple, because we know that as part of the temple endowment, there is a part of the ordinance that involves learning the tokens that are associated with the endowment. I won't go into details here out of respect for the sacredness of the ordinance. However, we know that that involves multiple touchings of the hands of every member of the endowment session. And then those people leave, all the patrons leave, and they go and they touch other people. And this is how a pandemic spreads. They may have had a special session that day of the endowment, and the officiator may have announced, this is the first token of the coronavirus. We desire all to receive it. And so as I say, as I grew in my development in the church, I came to the point where I realized that the leaders were not prophets, but then I satisfied myself with the idea that they were good men doing the best they can. And I think that to a large degree, that is probably still the truth. But when you get to the point where you realize that not only are they not prophets, they don't even seem to manifest common sense. That's when the testimony takes a real body blow. I have been surprised to find out that time after time, the church seems to be able 
to make in any given situation the worst possible decision that could be made. And frequently, the church outdoes itself and makes a decision that is so bad that it's not even something that I would have contemplated or imagined could have been made. And many examples of that can be found just in the past decade alone. I've talked about a number of those on prior podcasts, but I wanted to give you this piece of intelligence which has not hit the news to my knowledge. It has to do with inside information that I have regarding the mission at the Family History Center in Salt Lake City. Now, this information is direct information, and therefore I feel that it is highly credible, and that is the only reason I'm going to share it with you. But the Family History Center is itself a mission. It has a mission president. It is staffed by missionaries, both young missionaries as well as senior couples. And it is, of course, the senior couples who are the most vulnerable to the coronavirus and therefore the ones that need to be protected the most. The young missionaries need to be protected as well, but when it comes to the senior missionaries, even more so. Well, recently, and once again, well after the fact, well, recently, the mission at the Family History Center was shut down, or in other words, the Family History Center was closed for business temporarily during the coronavirus. That was a good move, and that was apparently the move that the church made. Now, the intelligence that I received from inside the Family History Center mission is that the shutting down of the Family History Center was really more form over substance. It was really done more for appearances sake. And that actually the mission president for the Family History Center has eight elders going into the Family History Center for three hour shifts and and a senior missionary or a senior missionary couple accompanies them into the Family History Center. This is remarkable to me. First, it indicates a set of what I see as misplaced priorities that the functioning of the Family History Center is seen, by the mission president at least, as more important than the health and welfare of the missionaries under his supervision. And second, it appears to be another instance of how the church does things and makes pronouncements and takes actions, sometimes with an idea toward impressing the public or showing the public one face, and yet behind the scenes, they are doing something else entirely, something that is in contradiction to that public face that they're putting out there. It is my hope that the mission president of the Family History Center in Salt Lake City will reconsider these actions on his part, if he has not already done so, and completely shut down the Family History Center and not have missionaries going in, even on three-hour shifts on a daily basis, to man the center. Or whatever it is they're doing in there that's so darn important to put their health and welfare at risk. Shifting to another subject, I receive a number of emails here at Radio Free Mormon. Frequently, they are sent to Bill Real because I am anonymous, and it is not everyone who is able to get in contact with me. But yesterday, I got an especially interesting email forwarded to me from Bill Real. Now, today's date is March 26, 2020. And the reason this was interesting to me is because it involves a listener to this program whose name I will not give because I'm not sure that that is something that would be okay with this particular listener. But it is a listener to the program who is going back to college as an adult and taking an English 101 course as part of their required classes. This listener received an assignment in class which was to write a research paper and much to my gratification, this listener wrote their research paper for the English 101 class on, wait for it, Radio Free Mormon, of all things. The date of this research paper is March 9th, 2020. It was well written and I wanted to share it with you. The title of the paper is, Letting Go is Easier with a Friend. And the paper runs as follows. You've believed in Santa Claus for your whole life. 
Even during the times when you went on vacation and skipped Christmas for a few years, you still believed somewhere deep down that he was there keeping you in mind, even when you hadn't thought of him for years. One day, you realize you don't want to just believe in Santa. You want to learn all you can about him so you can know him. So, you start researching. You learn some surprising things at first, something you may have heard rumored when you were a kid, but then the grown-ups hurriedly swept it under the rug saying that was anti-Santa talk and not true. Finally, you decide to go visit the North Pole. When you get there, there is no Santa. There are no elves. There is no workshop. There is no joy. There are only lies and your broken heart. This scenario is similar to what a faith crisis feels like. Santa is God and the church. And more than anything, you want to believe he is real and that the church is true. But the more you study and learn, the more critical thinking skills you activate, the more likely you are to conclude they aren't real. They are just a myth. That realization is soul-crushing. It is difficult to handle all the layers of betrayal and messiness that is a faith crisis. And now, da-da-da, Radio Free Mormon gets inserted into the paper. Because Radio Free Mormon is a credible, reliable, and intelligent podcast, it can be an anchoring source for a questioning Mormon as they navigate their faith crisis. So you heard it here first. Not only is Radio Free Mormon credible, not only is Radio Free Mormon credible and reliable, Radio Free Mormon is credible, reliable, and intelligent. What a good paper this is. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. The paper goes on. When you start to question and doubt your religion, it can make you feel very alone and very confused. E. Marshall Brooks, now I have no idea who this is, but there are footnotes at the end of the paper. E. Marshall Brooks reports the experience of others on their journey out of Mormonism, so specifically out of Mormonism, and this is the quote. People describe feeling like they were floating, that their world literally shook or felt to be crumbling beneath their feet. Well, once again, probably not a good use of the word literally. The world literally shook during the earthquake in Salt Lake City last week, but it doesn't literally shake when you're having a faith crisis, but it does seem to shake. And indeed, it does feel like the earth can be crumbling beneath your feet. Here, I'm not criticizing the author of the paper. I'm just making a point about someone who's quoted within the quote from E. Marshall Brooks in the paper. It goes on. If your world starts to fall out from under you, you look for ways to hang on. Even seeking support can feel scary because all your life you've been taught that anti-Mormon literature is of the devil and that ex-Mormons only tell lies to try to destroy the church. Well, we've seen that even as recently as last general conference. I made a few comments about that in yesterday's podcast. There will be more of the same sort in today's podcast once we get to discussing more of the talks from last general conference. The paper goes on. It was with a racing heart that I clicked on a taboo site like John DeLynn's Mormon Stories or dared to listen to a podcast like Radio Free Mormon. Okay, so this is my first critique of the paper. Why is it that John DeLynn's getting top billing over me? Okay, I'll let that pass. Let's go on. And after clicking on these sites and listening to Mormon Stories and also listening to Radio Free Mormon, I found solace that I was finally not alone. Listening to Radio Free Mormon, one notices each episode starts the same way. Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines. I'm actually reading my own opening in an English paper for college. What a great country. 
Podcasts, the paper goes on, podcasts in general have a way of weaving an intimate connection between the listener and the host of the podcast. Now, this is something I had not considered before because listeners often partake directly through earbuds and during solo activities, they come to know their favorite hosts well. Even though the host of Radio Free Mormon is anonymous and goes by RFM for short, he feels like a wise and knowledgeable friend. RFM has often listed his references for credibility. He joined the church in 1978. Well, this person obviously is a listener to the program. They know when I joined the church, served a two-year mission to Japan, yes, and is currently a defense attorney with over 25 years experience practicing law. As a Mormon who began to intensely study the doctrine and history, I, the author of the paper, I was unsettled by the facts I was uncovering. Finding RFM and knowing that he was well-educated in both spiritual and secular things gave me a reliable anchor as I binged his podcast through the latter days of my faith crisis. The first episode of Radio Free Mormon was published on October 23, 2016. One can understand how every episode is laid out from listening to this first episode as the format has been consistent through all 129 episodes. So this episode being 132, we can see that this paper was recently written. RFM explains the topic to be analyzed, gives necessary background information, and then addresses the issue point by point. This specific episode entitled, The Great Mormon History Cover-Up, that's number one, discusses why the church started to publish essays on its website that were dealing with controversial church history and doctrine. It is typically the study of these two topics, trying to deepen our faith, which leads a believing Mormon like me down the many rabbit holes of doubt and disbelief. However, because there are a plethora, ooh, good word, I think this paper is going to get an A. However, because there are a plethora of internet resources and podcast selections about navigating a Mormon faith crisis, I was careful to select information wisely. Marcus Banks, I'm not sure who that is either, but it's a person she's quoting. Marcus Banks advises how to know if a source found online is credible. Here's the quote from Marcus Banks. A credible source does not need to be free of all bias, but a credible source will always be transparent in the assumptions and thinking that went into its creation. RFM continually states his sources and is transparent with his research. Well, thank you. I try to be. He also admits to having been a Mormon apologist and writing several books in favor of the Mormon church in the past and explains how his views changed when new evidence came to light. This transparency led me to trust Radio Free Mormon as a credible podcast to help me sort out all I was learning during my faith crisis. Well, let me just interject here and say I'm flattered and very honored that I was able to be of some help to this writer during their faith crisis. It helps make me feel like all the work and all the effort that I put into creating this podcast is not for nothing. Because it's one thing just to go through sources and talk about different facts and different ideas and different doctrine and different history. It's another thing entirely to know that it's actually helping people in a real world setting. People who are going through a very, very difficult time in their life. And that this podcast is helpful to those people to know that they're not alone. And to help them sort through and navigate their Mormon faith crisis. Going on with the paper, the internet has also made it difficult for the church to hide embarrassing and unflattering history. In the past, this information was not accessible to the lay public. Because information is so readily available now, church leaders warn about the type of research one does. In one address from a church leader 
Ian S. Ardern likens sources found outside of the church's approved materials to destructive caterpillars with menacing jaws that gnaw at our spiritual roots. And I remember that address. I commented on that in a prior podcast when I was doing an earlier review of a prior general conference. I do remember that talk, the menacing jaws that gnaw at our spiritual roots. And yet this paper makes the interesting contrast and comparison. Yet the title of his address, the title of the talk was Seek Ye Out of the Best Books. That is a funny point. Good insight there. The mixed messages that are being sent are astounding. Read from the best books. But don't trust scholars who have also done that and then have written books based on their research. Only read what is safe and provided for you by the church and on the church's website. You cannot rely on other sources. Oh, here I would just say that the comma after website should probably be a semicolon, but now I'm nitpicking. This is a great paper. A, probably going to be an A plus if it goes on like this. Their hope that we read the essays on the church's website is just as hollow as the hope they have that we read our scriptures. Now, this is an interesting idea that the hope, quote unquote, the hope that the church leaders have that members of the church will read their essays on the church's website is just as hollow as the hope they have that members will read their scriptures because, of course, members typically do not read their scriptures. It is a rare Mormon. It is an unusual Latter-day Saint who actually reads their scriptures. And it's probably not just Mormons. It probably crosses over into other religions as well and other sects of Christianity. But this is an interesting point that's being made because when I did fervently study the scriptures and the gospel topics essays and followed the references in the footnotes, oh man, this is really getting into trouble here. We know where this is going, don't we? Once you go to the gospel topics essays and study the scriptures and then start reading the footnotes in the essays and following them, that can't be good. But once this author did that, she says, my mind was opened and not in the way the leaders wanted. They tell you to read and study, but they anticipate that you don't, so that they can shame you for not being obedient. Wow, this is a good paper. In an article detailing his address to a congregation of young married church members in Chicago, Jason Swenson quoted Dallin H. Oaks, a high-level church leader, as going as far as saying, I suggest that research is not the answer in regards to dealing with matters of church history and doctrinal issues. Yes, I remember that. I did a podcast about that very talk. I think it was called Research is Not the Answer. This paper goes on. Radio Free Mormon has helped me sort the high level of cognitive dissonance created by statements like this from church leaders. In a recent review of the podcast, Apple user Pansonator agrees. So apparently this is some comment about my podcast from another source called Pansonator. P-A-N-C-I-N-A-T-O-R. Here's the quote. RFM uses his attorney skills to present the logical problems in Mormon truth claims in a clear way. The paper continues. RFM systematically lays down each point line by line like he is arguing a case in court. He gives us both sides of an argument and lets the listener make an informed decision. Now the paper goes on to ask the question, but why does RFM remain anonymous? Why does he say broadcasting behind enemy lines at the beginning of each episode? Because if you start to learn the real history of the Mormon church, hashtag victory for Satan, you mustn't admit to it 
or become published in any way that is contrary to what the church teaches. If you do, you will be excommunicated. Take the September 6th, for example. Well, that's a good example. These were six individuals who experienced the wrath of the church leadership. Come not between a dragon and his wrath. Five were purged from the records, and one was merely disfellowshipped for being critical of the church in 1993. To remain safe from any disciplinary actions from the Mormon church, RFM must maintain his anonymity. But why does he care if he gets excommunicated if he argues against it? Simply stated, family. The one thing people tend to know about the Mormon church is the importance it places on family. RFM has stated that when he started podcasting, he was anonymous out of respect for his daughter, who was serving a mission for the church at the time. When she came home and found out about his podcast, she has not spoken to him since. The paper continues, It is difficult to deconstruct your religion. Credible sources of support aren't always easily located. It's difficult to share your doubts with church friends or family because of the costs to the relationships of their knowing. It is difficult to change your identity from a believer to an apostate. But that's really okay because the church is more than willing to do it for you. (laughs) That was my comment, not the paper. It is difficult to change your identity from a believer to an apostate. The connotations are confounding. Radio Free Mormon is a credible and reliable podcast. Yes, Radio Free Mormon is a credible and reliable podcast that can help ease the loneliness and confusion that one can experience as they muddle through their faith crisis. RFM, this is the final line, RFM is a friend. That's nice. Thank you. RFM is a friend who will take your hand as you let go of Santa's hand and walk away from the North Pole. That is the end of this paper for English 101 class, an actual paper that was submitted in an actual college class by an actual listener to this program, and actually a very, very good paper. With the exception of one comma, which I think should have been a semicolon, I can't find anything else to criticize as far as the structure, the spelling, and the syntax of this paper. And of course, I absolutely agree and embrace wholeheartedly the sentiments contained therein. Thank you so much for this wonderful paper, and thank you for sending it to me. Although I think actually it was the husband of this woman who sent it to Bill, who sent it to me. I don't know if the wife who wrote the paper even knows that I have it in my... (laughs) clutches. But she will once she listens to this episode. And I hope it's okay with her that I shared her paper with the Radio Free Mormon listening audience. Okay, now we're going to get back to General Conference and the McNuggets, the tasty McNuggets that I have culled from the different talks given there. But first, can I say something about General Conference? General Conference is boring. And it's not just boring, it's deathly boring. I would rather watch paint dry or grass grow than have to listen to general conference. Because watching paint dry or grass grow does not actually lower my IQ through the experience. (laughs) Okay, anyway, but this is the thing about general conference. Everybody knows it's boring. And yet, and yet it is seen as a virtue. Mormonism has taken boredom and made it into a virtue. Typically, people look at boredom and think, that's kind of a negative thing. I'd rather do about anything in the world rather than be bored. But Mormonism says, no, boredom is a good thing. And in fact, we're going to create a church and we're going to have a general conference that is conducted in such a way as to maximize the boringness of it. We have even had church leaders 
talk about boredom as a virtue. I think it was Boyd K. Packer who, in introducing one of his talks, says or even boasts that he is not there to entertain his audience. So he hopes that the people who have come to hear him have not come to be entertained. He has not come to entertain them, but he has come to instruct them, which is a big red neon sign blinking on and off. This is going to be boring. But not only is it going to be boring, it's a good thing that it's boring. It is better to be boring than to be entertaining. As if Boyd K. Packer is saying that in order to not be boring, he would actually have to juggle plates or saw a lady in half while he's talking in order to be entertaining or at least interesting. And when I think about it, Joseph Smith, say what you like about the man. He was anything but boring. He was always coming up with new things, new ideas, being creative, using his prophetic imagination, to use the phrase of Terrell Givens, in coming up with new ideas. In fact, he once said that it was his specific province to dig up new things for his listeners to hear. He was always wanting to be continually interesting, continually new, continually expansive. And that is something about the founder of the Mormon church that has not been continued among the current crop of leadership. In fact, we haven't seen it for many, many, many decades, at least as long as I've been listening to General Conference since 1978. We can also see this aspect of the boringness of Mormonism in their definition of reverence. Because reverence in Mormonism is not doing something. It's not an active word. Instead, reverence is the absence of activity. It is the absence of noise. It is the absence of any sound. It's the absence of motion. It is the absence of communication, at least communication with others. And it is symbolized by the young man or the young woman who will get up in front of church before a meeting starts while everybody's talking with each other and actually enjoying this brief period of church before church actually starts. And they are sometimes called the reverence child. And it is their job to get up and stand there and fold their arms and be completely still and bow their heads so that the members of the church will get the idea that they're not being reverent and they need to stop doing what it is that they're doing. They need to stop talking. They need to stop moving. They need to stop communicating. They need to stop having fun and enter into this state of absolute and complete boredom, which we call reverence. But getting back to this idea of boredom and recognizing that General Conference and church in general, but right now we're talking about General Conference. General Conference is boring. I have never attended a general conference from the very first general conference I saw back in October of 1978 and every general conference since that I have not understood and recognized to be boring. Now, every now and again, once in a blue moon, there might be something that's done in general conference or something that's said in general conference that relieves the boredom that actually is marginally interesting. But those exceptions are few and far between. And once again, I want to say that there may be some Mormons out there who actually find General Conference interesting, that they find it spiritually nourishing, as we're told in every General Conference. At the end of every General Conference, some General Authority will get up there and say, we have been spiritually fed. And there may be some Mormons who feel that way. But it is my impression, based upon my experience, first off, let me say for myself, I don't feel that way. And I don't think I'm the only one. And I know that there are many, many other, probably the vast majority of Mormons who feel the same way as I do. They recognize that general conference is boring, but, but they know that they're not supposed to feel that way. They know they're not supposed to think that general conference is boring. They're supposed to think that general conference is the most exciting two weekends of the entire year. 
we understand that is the face we're supposed to put forward. That's how we're supposed to present to others so that others will understand that we are righteous, that we are in tune with the Spirit, that we are honoring the prophets sufficiently to not find their words boring, but to find them absolutely fascinating. And so by this means, I think that Mormons generally get into this position very early on in their development where they start understanding that there are two faces of Mormonism. You've heard of the three faces of Eve. Well, these are the two faces of Mormonism. And the two faces of Mormonism are the Mormonism that we present to others, which is always very good, very positive, very uncritical of Mormonism in all of its various aspects. And then there's the other face that we allow ourselves to understand, even if we don't want to understand it, even if we don't want to think about it very much. There is part of us at some level that realizes that that outward face of Mormonism is different from the inward face. And this is a very, very clear-cut example, which I think most members are familiar with. We understand that church is boring. We understand that general conference is boring. And yet we understand also that we need to present a face to everybody else that it's not boring. With the result that we have a bunch of Mormons running around who are pretending that general conference is interesting, but inwardly all of these Mormons recognize that general conference is is boring. And the reason I bring this up is because at some point, many Mormons, not all Mormons, many Mormons, I did this, perhaps you've done this too, many Mormons come to the point where they feel safe enough or brave enough to be able to express outwardly how boring they find general conference with other people, with other members of the church. And sometimes they will encounter other members of the church who will reprove them and say, well, you just need to be, you need to prepare yourself for general conference. You need to be more spiritual so that you will find it interesting. But as often as not, once you take that risk and reveal your true self to another Mormon, you will find the other Mormon given the courage to reveal their true selves back to you and to admit to you in hushed tones that yes, they find general conference boring too. Now, the fact that General Conference is boring, at least to me and to many Mormons, the fact that General Conference is boring is not the end of the world. That is not the death knell of the church. It does not prove the church is not true just because General Conference is boring. And therefore, this is a recognition and something that can actually be communicated to other people without feeling like your testimony is being threatened, without feeling like you're threatening the testimony of somebody else. It is a relatively innocuous disclosure to make. And the first thing that happens is that all of a sudden now as a Mormon, you're experiencing integrity within yourself. The outside expression of what you're saying about an aspect of church is now being brought into line with what you feel inwardly about this aspect of church. And like I say, it's not the end of the world, but what it does, I think, is serve as sort of a gateway drug. Because once you have allowed yourself to actually openly state something that you feel about church that is not 100% positive and is only mildly critical. Now you have cracked open the door to allow yourself to begin to express more of your feelings about church, more of your feelings about church doctrine, more of your feelings about church history. And eventually you are able, hopefully, if you find the right people to talk to who will communicate similarly back to you, you may find yourself able to actually bring yourself into complete integrity with regards to the church. In other words, everything that you feel inside you is what you can express outwardly. And that is what one of the goals of this program is. It's one of the goals of my life, and I hope to carry it over into this program of Radio Free Mormon, telling you honestly exactly how it is that I feel about the church, both the good 
and the bad because there are many good things about the church. But just because there are many good things about the church doesn't mean that everything about the church has to be good or that I'm only going to talk about the good things. I will also talk about the things that I find problematic or potentially not so good. Like I did earlier in this podcast talking about what was going on behind the scenes at the Church History Center. Okay, those are a few of the ideas that have been rolling around in my head as I've been talking about General Conference and the General Conference McNuggets from October 2019. And so now let's get to the meat of tonight's podcast and go over a few more talks from that General Conference. We left off in the Saturday morning session and we were just about to get to the talk that was given by D. Todd Christofferson. That's another thing about General Conference and church in general that I've always thought interesting. In a political sphere, and pretty much in any other sphere, when a person gives an address, we call it an address. When a person gives a speech, we call it a speech. But in Mormonism, whenever a person stands up to give either an address or a speech, we just call it a talk. They give a talk. It's really neither here nor there. It's always just struck me as kind of odd. Calling it a talk just seems a little bit less grand and wonderful than a speech or an address or a sermon even. Yeah, we don't have sermons. We have talks. Everybody talks. Talk, talk, talk. Pick a little, talk a little. (laughs) Okay, seriously, I'm getting a little punch drunk here. I actually may end the podcast with that song from The Music Man. Pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheap, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more. Okay, here we go. We went through Elder Holland's talk. We went through Elder Vincent's talk. We went through Stephen Owen's talk. And here we come to Elder D. Todd Christofferson. His talk is titled, The Joy of the Saints. And during his talk, he says this, I haven't met anyone who found the gospel later in life who didn't wish it could have been earlier. Now, that may be true. He's talking about his experience of somebody finding the gospel when they're 40 and they're 50 and thinking, wow, I really wish I had found the gospel earlier in life. And I'm sure that that's true. But it strikes me that the converse of this is also true, that a person who leaves the church, who's raised in the church, who joins the church perhaps when they're 18 years old and fresh out of high school in 1978, but a person who spends decades in the church sacrificing and giving and paying tithing and paying fast offerings and going on a mission and doing all the things that a faithful Mormon is supposed to do, that a person who gets later in life after doing all that and now realizing that the church is not what it represents itself to be and that the truth claims of the church are not necessarily true, it would probably be correct to say, I haven't met anyone who left the gospel later in life who didn't wish they could have left it earlier. So I think this particular statement by Elder D. Todd Christofferson cuts both ways. He goes on later in his talk to mention a story. Now this is a story that happened back in 1989. And once again, unfortunately, it involves a person who is a member of the church who gets seriously injured and who does not get healed. Once again, this is a story like the General Conference Death March. Every General Conference, you're going to have stories like this. You're going to have stories of people who get injured, who get sick, who catch some disease. They receive blessings, whether it's mentioned or not. We know that they receive blessings because that's what happens among Mormons when they get sick or injured seriously. And yet those priesthood blessings have no power to heal them. Here's the story from Elder Christofferson's talk. In 1989, Jack Rushton, was serving as president of the Irvine, California stake in the United States. So this is a stake president. During a family vacation on the California coast, Jack was body surfing 
when a wave swept him into a submerged rock. Ow! Breaking his neck and severely injuring his spinal cord. Jack said later, The instant I hit, I knew that I was paralyzed. He could no longer talk or even breathe on his own. This is a tragic accident and a terrible situation. But fortunately, he's a Mormon. He's not only a Mormon, he's a state president. He has got access to people who have the priesthood and can give him the most effective priesthood blessings that are available in the church and indeed upon the face of the earth. The story goes on. Family, friends, and stake members rallied around Brother Rushton and his wife. And here's the part where we know that he's receiving priesthood blessings. Of course he is. Even though Elder Christofferson doesn't mention it, we know from our common experience in the church that that is happening. And among other things, these members remodeled a section of their home to accommodate Jack's wheelchair. Well, this is a positive thing. It's a good thing that they're helping him out and remodeling a section of the home to accommodate Jack's wheelchair. It's unfortunate, though, that there's nobody around who can give him a priesthood blessing that will heal him and make him so he doesn't need the wheelchair at all. Joanne, that's his wife, Joanne became Jack's principal caregiver for the next 23 years. Oh my gosh, he's paralyzed and in a wheelchair for 23 years. I mean, I'm glad he didn't die. I'm glad that members of his stake rallied around and helped him out. But I really wish that the Mormon church had a priesthood power that could have healed this man. And once again, we get into the area of what the church teaches in its outward face versus what actually happens on the inside. The church teaches that it has priesthood power, that this priesthood power can heal people miraculously. But the reality is, when we look at General Conference, I am unable to find any stories, at least in the last several years while I've been doing this podcast, I am unable to find any stories that actually even make that claim. Instead, we get story after story of members of the church who get injured or sick. They obviously receive priesthood blessings. I mean, my gosh, it's 23 years that this man is in a wheelchair. He received priesthood blessings, at least early on when there was still some hope that the priesthood might work to heal him, but nothing worked. Instead, he's in a wheelchair for 23 years and his wife becomes his principal caregiver. Going on with his story, referring to Book of Mormon accounts of how the Lord visited his people in their afflictions and made their burdens light, Joanne, the wife, said, I am often amazed at the lightness of heart I feel in caring for my husband. So obviously this is not just a huge burden to her husband, it's a huge burden to her as well since she becomes his principal caregiver for 23 years. And yet the miracle, the miracle is not priesthood power that can heal him. The miracle becomes this lightness of heart that she's able to feel in caring for her husband, which I think is good as far as it goes, and I'm not here to discount that. The story continues. An alteration to his respiration system restored Jack's ability to speak. Okay, let's stop here for a second. It's not the priesthood that restores Jack's ability to speak. It is an alteration to his respiration system. It is medical science and technology that restores Jack's ability to speak, not priesthood power. And within the year... Jack was called as gospel doctrine teacher and stake patriarch. When he would give a patriarchal blessing, another priesthood holder placed Brother Rushton's hand on the head of the person receiving the blessing and supported his hand and arm during the blessing. This story is becoming painful to me because another person has to be present for Patriarch Rushton 
to put his hands upon somebody receiving a patriarchal blessing. And this person who does it has to be a priesthood holder. So we have to have a priesthood holder assist the paralyzed patriarch so that he can put his hands on someone else's head, but the same priesthood holder can't put their own hands on Brother Rushton's head and heal him by the priesthood power so that Brother Rushton can put his own hands on the head of the person to receive the patriarchal blessing. That's why I say this is painful to me to recount this. Finally, Jack passed away on Christmas Day, 2012, after 22 years of devoted service. So the miracle is not priesthood power to heal. The miracle is enduring to the end in spite of the absence of priesthood power to heal. Now that's the first story that we've encountered in this particular general conference regarding the lack of priesthood power to heal. Or in other words, the general conference death march, as I put it euphemistically. But there's another story, and it's in the same talk by Elder Christofferson that falls under that same general heading. Here's that story. When in Haiti last month for the dedication of the Port-au-Prince Temple, Elder David and Sister Susan Bednar, uh uh-oh, it's Elder Bednar, the one who gave the great talk, Faith Not to Be Healed. This is not going to end well, I can tell. They met with a young sister whose husband had been killed a few days earlier in a tragic accident. Okay, he'd already been killed before they got there. They can't do any further damage, apparently. They wept together with her. Yet, on Sunday, this dear woman was in her place as an usher at the dedication services with a soft, welcoming smile for all who entered the temple. So there probably wasn't a chance for a priesthood blessing to be given to this husband who died tragically a few days earlier in an accident. And yet what we see is a decided lack of divine special oversight over the health and safety of members of the church, even in Haiti. And the miracle here is not that this woman's husband's life was preserved by some miraculous divine intervention, but rather the miracle is, is that even a few days later, she's able to be in place as an usher at the dedication services for the temple with a soft, welcoming smile for all who entered therein. That's the miracle. In spite of what it says outwardly, Mormonism has no priesthood power to heal people. Instead, in spite of the absence of that power, we are supposed to press forward in faithfulness anyway. That's the miracle, the strength and indomitability of the human spirit. And indeed, that is miraculous. It's just not the miracles that Mormonism advertises. The next talk is given by, oh, it's by a woman, Michelle Craig, first counselor in the Young Women General Presidency. It's called Spiritual Capacity. And in her talk, she once again hits this theme, which has been developing, as we've seen, since the beginning of General Conference. This has to do with Wi-Fi bad, Nephi good. We need less Wi-Fi and more Nephi. Here's how she puts it. Satan wants to separate us from God's voice by keeping us out of those quiet places, i.e., this is the Mormon idea that God can only speak to us in a still, small voice. So we have to get very quiet, very reverent, stop moving, stop talking to others so that we can hear this very still, small voice that God uses to speak to us. If God speaks in a still, small voice, you and I need to draw close to hear him. Just imagine what would happen if we were as intent on staying connected with heaven as we are on staying connected to Wi-Fi. She actually says Wi-Fi again. So this is definitely a theme in general conference. And now a little bit later in her talk, she quotes from President Henry B. Eyring. Here's the quote. President Eyring has taught us to seek revelation by asking God who we can help for him. 
And now the quote, if you ask questions like that, the Holy Ghost will come and you'll feel nudges about things you can do for other people. When you go and do those things, you're on the Lord's errand. And when you're on the Lord's errand, you qualify for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, the reason I bring up this quote from President Eyring is because this falls under the theme that I've noted in prior podcasts of the ever more restricted nature of revelation that members of the church are allowed to receive. And President Eyring hits on this as much as any general authority in the church. He has said in prior general conference addresses that the leaders of the church can receive revelation from God, but the revelation that the members receive is quote unquote confirming revelation. In other words, the only revelation that we're allowed to receive in this realm is revelation that what the leaders have said is true. In other words, that confirms the revelation that the leaders have given us. Any revelation we receive that is different from what the leaders have taught, well, that's coming from the wrong source, as Elder Oaks said in a recent face-to-face broadcast. So there is no valid revelation that we can receive on any doctrinal issue that is different from what is taught by the leaders of the church. And here, President Eyring says that one of the very few ways that we are allowed as members to receive revelation is we can receive revelation as to what we can do to help somebody else. That's acceptable. That's where he says, if you ask questions like that, the Holy Ghost will come and you'll feel nudges about things you can do for other people. That's okay. That's a permissible revelation. And indeed, this whole idea of teaching about members being able to receive personal revelation is fraught with danger from the leader's perspective because it has to be understood and communicated every time that the revelation they receive cannot be different from the leaders of the church. It cannot make them stray or vary in any degree from the teachings of the church and from the commandments that the church says the members have to follow. And later on in this talk, Sister Craig makes this clear in the following revealing statement. Here's what she says. As his faithful disciple, you can receive personal inspiration and revelation, comma, consistent with his commandments, comma, that is tailored to you. So you see, it's not enough to say, as his faithful disciple, you can receive personal inspiration and revelation that is tailored to you. We have to put in the same sentence to make it clear that any revelation we receive has to be consistent with his commandments, which is a very general term, which can cover a lot of ground when it comes to Mormon orthodoxy. She goes on, you have unique missions and roles to perform in life and will be given unique guidance to fulfill them. Well, that's all true as long as it's consistent with his commandments. So in this way, I see the LDS Church as taking the inspiring and expanding doctrine of personal revelation and narrowing it down step by step until really it is so small and so insignificant that it ends up amounting to not really revelation at all. Or perhaps put another way, personal revelation is limited to the point where it can function for the average member only within a sphere that is so small and so limited as to not be a threat or a danger to the leadership of the church and their authority over the members. And now we get to another talk by a general authority, by an apostle, I should say, Elder Dale G. Renlund. This is his talk for General Conference in the Saturday morning session titled, Unwavering Commitment to Jesus Christ. And he introduces his talk by speaking about a painting that was put up 
in the temple, the Kinshasa temple in the Congo. And this painting is of a huge waterfall. And the title of the painting is Congo Falls. And what it depicts is a practice that was common more than a century ago among early converts to Christianity in the Congo. And this was his comment that caught my attention. He says, before their conversions, i.e. before their conversions to Christianity, they worshipped inanimate objects, believing that the items possessed supernatural powers. Now, in the LDS Church, I don't think that we have really a lot of instances of worshipping inanimate objects, but I do think that we have a case or two of believing that inanimate objects possessed supernatural powers. And yes, seer stones come to mind under this category. And the reason I find the statement by Elder Renland interesting and perhaps somewhat humorous is that he is very willing to speak somewhat dismissively about the belief of pagans in the Congo prior to their conversion to Christianity, that they believe that inanimate objects possess supernatural powers without apparently recognizing the fact that early members of Mormonism, indeed the founding prophet of Mormonism, had the same kind of belief, i.e. believing that inanimate objects possess supernatural powers. Later on in his talk, he makes a remarkable statement, and I think it's remarkable because I think that Elder Renlund was also prophesying of the coronavirus. Here's what he says. Now, it would be nice if increased faith were transmitted like the flu or the common cold. Then a simple spiritual sneeze would build faith in others. I think it would take somebody who is faithless indeed to not see this as a prediction and foreknowledge on the part of Elder Runland of the coronavirus, which indeed is transmitted like the flu. It's not just transmitted like the flu. It is a flu. So not only did President Nelson predict the coronavirus, Elder Renlund did as well. In the mouths of two or three witnesses shall all my words be established. And now we get to the final talk of the Saturday morning session. And this is probably the last talk that I'll review before I end tonight's podcast. It is titled Trust in the Lord. It is by President Dallin H. Oaks, who, by the way, is the first counselor in the first presidency, if you didn't know that already. But it says that right here, directly under the printed version of the title of his talk. Mormons do love their titles, as well as their middle initials. And this is a talk that I did an entire episode on shortly after the last general conference because I thought that he said some things which deserved its own podcast. But he also makes some other comments along the way that I didn't talk about in that prior podcast in which I'm going to comment on here. This is a talk that he introduces by saying that some time ago he received a letter from a woman who was contemplating a temple marriage to a man whose eternal companion had died. She would be a second wife. She asked this question, would she be able to have her own house in the next life or would she have to live with her husband and his first wife? I just told her to trust the Lord. And you remember that this was a laugh line and indeed the audience tittered appropriately. It was that story, as well as the story immediately following, which was of a similar nature, that I covered in the prior podcast. And I believe the title of it was The Exaltation Complication. But then, as part of his talk, he goes into an analysis and an exposition of the spirit world. That world that Mormons teach exists between death and the resurrection, where spirits exist in another world, and those who have been Mormons are busy teaching the gospel to those who were not Mormons in this life so that they can accept the gospel and then hopefully accept the baptism and the other ordinances that have been performed for them by proxy in the temple. The thing that's interesting about this subject is the way that President Oaks introduces it because he's not here to tell us anything 
new, any new insight, anything revelatory. I mean, he's only a prophet for crying out loud. He's only the first counselor in the first presidency. He's only a person who was sustained by the membership as being a prophet, seer, and revelator. But what he is here is not to tell us anything new or anything revealed. Rather, what he's here to do is to tell us that he really does not know much about the spirit world. It's like Sam Cooke singing, don't know much about history, don't know much about geometry. Well, President Oaks' version is, don't know much about church history, don't know much theology. With, of course, the implication that if he doesn't know a lot about the spirit world, then we really shouldn't know a lot about the spirit world either, at least not something that actually constitutes doctrine. Now, here's what he says. What do we really know about conditions in the spirit world? I believe a BYU religion professor's article on this subject had it right. And now he quotes from this article by a BYU religion professor. Why do we have an apostle of God and a prophet upon the face of the earth to come and talk to us in general conference when what he is going to be doing is quoting approvingly the words of a religion professor at BYU? But here's what he says. When we ask ourselves what we know about the spirit world from the standard works, the answer is not as much as we often think. So here... President Oaks is saying that we really don't know very much about the spirit world, and we sure don't know as much as we think we know about the spirit world. But his goal in this talk is not really to tell us what more we should know about the spirit world, but to do some boundary marking between what it is that we know about the spirit world, i.e. what the standard works say about the spirit world, versus what it is that other people think they know about the spirit world. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this talk, but trust me, he goes through a very dry recital at this point of what it is that the scriptures teach about the spirit world, which indeed is not a whole lot. And after he gets to the end of this exposition, he says, resurrection for all in the spirit world. Let me try and do this like President Oaks. Resurrection for all in the spirit world is assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, though it occurs at different times for different groups. Until that appointed time, What the scriptures tell us about activity in the spirit world principally concerns the work of salvation. Now, I read that much so I could read the next line. Little else is revealed. So here he's doing the boundary markings, right? He's saying this is what is revealed. Nothing else is revealed or little else is revealed. So this is what we need to content ourselves with. And we need to not go beyond that. Once again, I contrast this with what Joseph Smith used to say, which was that it was his province to dig up new things for his listeners to hear. Well, it is the province of the current leaders of the church not to dig up new things for their listeners to hear, but to repeat for the millionth time the things that the listeners have already heard with a gentle reminder that they should not go beyond this, mainly because the leaders of the church can't go beyond it themselves. They claim to be prophets. I don't see a lot of prophecy. They claim to be revelators. Not seeing that either. And as far as seers go, don't get me started. But it's interesting because apparently President Oaks wants to talk about the fact that there are different members of the church who believe that they have had experiences with people in the spirit world, usually deceased ancestors or deceased members of the family who have come back to talk to them and perhaps passed on a little extra biblical and extra canonical information about the spirit world. And so what President Oaks wants to do is he wants to make allowance for that to exist, but stress that this is not the doctrine of the church. So here's what he says. Beyond these basics, our canon of scripture contains very little about the spirit world that follows death and precedes the final judgment. So what else do we know about the spirit world? Many members of the church have had visions or other inspirations to inform them about how things operate or are, are 
or are organized. Boy, try and say that three times fast. Or are organized in the spirit world. But these personal spiritual experiences are not to be understood or taught as the official doctrine of the church. And of course, there is abundant speculation by members and others in published sources like books on near-death experiences. So in what is somewhat of a remarkable move, President Oaks seems to be willing to allow a little bit of elbow room for visions that members of the church might have regarding the spirit world, manifestations that they might have from members of the spirit world, and even the possibility of near-death experiences among members to be actual, to be real, but yet to make it very clear that he's closing the door on allowing any of this to be the official doctrine of the church. The official doctrine of the church is what he has just gotten done reciting. Then he quotes from Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson from prior conferences, where they say what is becoming the well-worn trope about their definition of doctrine, that it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, pastor, president necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, not meant to be official or binding for the whole church. Now, once again, I want to say that I've heard this before in a couple of comments about this statement. First off, their definition of doctrine is not itself doctrine. In other words, they define doctrine as something that is taught by all the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. And yet it is only Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson, and now apparently Elder Oaks, who have adopted and taught this definition of doctrine. So we have three apostles who have taught this definition of doctrine. Not all of them. And until all of them teach this definition of doctrine, by the very definition of doctrine itself that they are promoting, their definition of doctrine cannot be considered doctrine within the LDS Church. It's a self-defeating argument, at least until such time as all the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and all the members of the First Presidency sign off on this definition. The second thing I want to say about it is to go behind the scenes on this and think why is it that these apostles have felt it necessary to promote this specific definition of doctrine, a definition which has not existed in the church prior to this. Why do they have to say that a statement by one church leader on a single occasion is not meant to be official or binding for the whole church? The only reason they would come up with that statement is if there were, in fact, statements by church leaders which they don't want the members to consider to be binding upon the whole church. And here there are a plethora, to use that word from the English paper, a plethora of instances of this, not least of which would be the teachings by Brigham Young about the Adam-God theory, which indeed was not said on a single occasion. And yet many people think that because he was the president of the church and the prophet of the Lord, and claim this to be revelation for crying out loud, and that if somebody didn't believe it, they would be damned, because he said all of those things that maybe that is doctrine and maybe that is binding on the church. Well, according to this new definition of doctrine, it doesn't fit this definition and therefore it is not to be considered doctrine. And that's how easily we can do away with that thorny problem of the Adam-God theory. Now, they're not going to talk about what specific doctrines or specific statements of prior church leaders that they are trying to sweep under the rug by this methodology, but those who have ears to hear will understand. Oh, and then Elder Oaks tries to give an example of what does constitute doctrine under this new confabulated definition. And of course, he wants to put, you know it, the family proclamation front and center, because this is doctrine. It is binding on the members of the church. And here's what he says. The family proclamation signed by all 15 prophets, seers, and revelators is a wonderful illustration of that principle. 
Beyond something as formal as the family proclamation, the prophetic teachings of the presidents of the church, affirmed by other prophets and apostles, are also an example of this. So even when he's giving a talk about the spirit world, the family proclamation is apparently never far away from the thoughts and intents of Elder Oak's heart. And now he's going to give the part of his talk where he basically discounts any questions that people have about the spirit world that are not answered by the official doctrine of the church. He's going to say, Hitherto shalt thou come and no further. Now remember, this is what Joseph Smith said he despised about the creeds because they set up stakes and say, Hitherto shalt thou come and no further. And he wanted the liberty of believing as he pleased. He wanted the liberty of approaching God and finding out more than what it was the creeds decreed. The creeds decreed. That should be used in general conference. That's pretty good. He wanted to find out more than the creeds decreed that he could know. And yet this is the same sort of thing that Elder Oaks is going to do here. Here's what he says. So what about a question, like I mentioned earlier, about where spirits live? And here he's talking about his first story about, am I going to have to live in the same house as my husband's first wife? If that question seems strange or trivial to you, consider many of your own questions, or even those you have been tempted to answer on the basis of something you heard from another person sometime in the past. Can you say boundary marking? I knew you could. For all questions about the spirit world, I suggest two answers. Okay, so any question you got about the spirit world, no matter what it is, whether it's what house you're going to live in, whether you're going to have to live with your husband's first wife or not, he's going to give two answers that will cover the ground and answer any question that you might have. First, remember that God loves his children and will surely do what is best for each of us. Okay, so in other words, whatever's going to happen, it'll be for our best. It's in God's hands. That answers the question. Well, it kind of answers the question by not answering the question. But let's see if he does better with the second answer. Second, remember this familiar Bible teaching, which has been most helpful to me on a multitude of unanswered questions. What? Wait, wait. So Elder Oaks has a multitude of unanswered questions? What is the point of being a prophet if you've got a multitude of unanswered questions? Maybe I've been reading the job description wrong all these years. But here's what he says. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. So really it sounds like his first answer and his second answer are kind of the same. We don't know. God knows. We'll leave it up to him and we'll trust that he will sort it out in the afterlife because he has our best interest at heart and surely he will do what is best for us. My only hope is that God does better in the afterlife in doing what is best for us than he's doing here in the current living situation on this planet. Now, actually, I've got to give kudos to Elder Oaks here because he goes on to say, not that we cannot even talk about different experiences we've had or different questions or possible answers to these questions about the spirit world, just that we shouldn't consider them to be official doctrine. Well, that makes sense. Here's what he says. We can all wonder privately about circumstances in the spirit world. Well, that's nice of him. He's giving us the freedom to just think about it. Thank you, Elder Oaks. We can all wonder about it privately or even discuss. Wow, we can discuss. This is good. This is a step forward. Or even discuss these or other unanswered questions in family or other intimate settings. Oh, now notice what he says. We can discuss them, but only in family settings or other intimate settings like with the bishop. Don't be talking about this with other members of the church who are not in your family or who are not in these intimate settings. I, don't be bringing this up in Sunday school. Don't be talking about this in sacrament meeting. We don't need to be talking about this anywhere other than the most restricted settings possible. And then this warning, 
But let us not teach or use as official doctrine what does not meet the standards of official doctrine. And we remember now that the standards of official doctrine have been defined now by three apostles whose definition itself is not standard doctrine. And now this warning. Excessive reliance on personal teachings or speculations may even draw us aside from concentrating on learning and efforts that will further our understanding and help us go forward on the covenant path. My take on this is that really I think he's missing the boat because this may have application to a number of people, but my experience has been that those who go on and study and learn more about the spirit world are those who have pretty much learned all the things that are acceptable for members to learn within the modern correlated church theology. And it is only after they've gotten to that point that they want to go beyond that and find out what other people have taught, what other people have said on the subject. So it doesn't really draw them aside from learning further about the gospel. It's something they do after they've already learned all about the gospel, after they have learned everything that they are quote-unquote permitted to learn as official doctrine in the LDS church. And then he makes this interesting statement a couple of paragraphs down when he says, there is so much we do not know. Or let me say it like Elder Oaks, there is so much we do not know. And here's the context in which he says it. That same principle applies to unanswered questions about ceilings in the next life. So once again, we don't know about ceilings. We don't know how God's going to arrange all this stuff. We've got multiple people, multiple women being sealed to one man. And indeed, Elder Oaks is one of those people who has two women sealed to him, his first wife, who was sealed to him and then passed away, and now his second wife. And so he says there's so much that we don't know about the next life. So now he's going to talk about those ceilings. The same principle applies to unanswered questions about ceilings in the next life or desired readjustments because of events or transgressions in mortality. There is so much we do not know that our only sure reliance is to trust in the Lord and his love for his children. Now, as a general principle, I think that's great, but I can't help but notice that this is coming from a prophet of God, a prophet, seer, and revelator, a first counselor in the first presidency of the only true and living church of God upon the face of the whole earth. And here he is saying, there is so much we do not know that our only sure reliance is to trust in the Lord. Well, shouldn't he be saying, there is so much we do not know that our only sure reliance is to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him and he will reveal the answers to us so that we can follow his will and do on earth what he would have done in heaven. Isn't that the whole selling point of the LDS church? Isn't that what makes it better than any of the other apostate churches who don't have prophets at the head, who can inquire of God and receive revelation and answer to their questions? And yet I see and I hear Elder Oaks in this statement and indeed in this entire talk admitting the reality of the fact that he has no special access to heaven. All he can do is come forward and recapitulate what it is that the standard works say about the spirit world and say that beyond that, he has no special knowledge, no special understanding, no special revelation. And indeed, if I were doing a podcast about this one talk, I would probably title it, There is so much we do not know. Okay, that's the end of tonight's podcast. I'm going to do some editing now and I'll try and get this up later today. This will be the third podcast in as many days. I'm trying to do my part here at Radio Free Mormon to help bolster the spirits and ease the loneliness of those who are sheltering now at home under directives from the government and finally directives from the church during this coronavirus 
pandemic. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.